Welcome to Redeemed Humanity, an offshoot of the Good Good Podcast. My hope for this project is to follow some Christian brothers and sisters who have inspired me by working to make room for the church to reunite over topics that have historically divided us. I, I believe that the church has been divided for long enough over women's and men's roles in the church, and that there actually is common ground for us to stand on as we continue to discuss this vital topic. That common ground is Jesus, and I believe that turning to him in our division over this topic is going to move us to see a grand and, and beautiful vision for the church as he leads us forward. So thanks for walking with me in this. It's absolutely humbling. Hey, so my name is Hayden. Maybe you recognize me as one of the three voices from the Good Good podcast where me and my friends Chris and Harry have set out just to discuss the Bible and theology and um, topics that concern the church. And maybe you're new to this and this is the first time that you've been here. Thanks either way so much for being here. Just Quickly wanted to give a shout out to those two for being gracious and allowing me to use the podcast, kind of hijack it for my own project here, even though actually I'm super grateful. They've both been really integral pieces in my explorations with this um, as editors and conversation I've had with them. I mean, it's so meaningful. And and I'm really grateful for you all that you're here just wanting to continue to explore this. And yeah, be, before we jump right in, I, I just want to say I, maybe you are pretty firm in what you believe in um, women's and men's roles in the churches. You know, there's these camps called complementarian and egalitarian that people have fallen in for quite a while. I'm just going to encourage you to just do like a thought experiment for me. Like, what if I had no idea what I believed about these things? Um, could I just listen with a, a fresh eyes, um, fresh ears, and a, and a kind of open mind? That's how I attempted to explore this. And I'll be honest, like I had some preconceived ideas of where I was going to end up by the end of this exploration, but I didn't end up there. And so I yeah, just ask you to walk humbly with me. I'm not trying to change your mind, honestly. I'm, like I said before, I'm just trying to direct us all to Jesus and see if maybe turning our focus to him helps unlock some stuff. So with that all said, I would like to answer this first question. Why am I approaching this topic? So the answer to that is, is because I love my wife. My wife, Sydney, drives and motivates me in every aspect of my life. But honestly, I, I had no idea how much she would impact my very soul to know God's love. And tragically, much of the impact she has brought into my life has centered around the two of us having to come together and to work through the trauma that she has experienced in her life 
and the marginalization that she still encounters that often results simply from just being a woman. She's told me about this recurring dream she has where she's forced to undergo surgery on her throat and one that ensures that she can never speak again. It's a nightmare that subconsciously depicts this reality that she has experienced as a woman, forcing her to reckon over and over again with the fact that from her experience, she has no true voice. What's more, those with social power and privilege have not listened to her and nor do they use their status to accommodate even her most basic needs. Those realities, they introduce this unexpected aspect into our marriage that by honestly the pure grace of Jesus has just grown the depths of our love for one another as we learn how to work through her trauma together. She seems to be having the nightmare less often these days, but recently she had to reckon with that same underlying truth, but this time it was because of scripture, or, or maybe a better way to say it is not because of scripture, but an interpretation of scripture that seemed to reinforce that same underlying experience. You, woman, you've got no true voice here. That's what she heard. And although the sermon we were listening to was packaged with like genuine and, and loving intent to encourage women, Sydney, she didn't feel encouraged. In spite of the insistence that, you know, we, hey, we shouldn't focus on the, the women can't aspect of these verses, though, you know, it's there, but we shouldn't focus on it. Rather, let's, hey, let's focus on these deeper truths. It, it was all we could do just to not simply hear women can't. So after we listened to this sermon, Sydney and I, we spent hours again discussing the biblical nature of what's become called complementarianism, which if you don't know, is this idea that men and women have biblically guided roles in the church. And particularly the, the kind of crux of the matter is that God has set aside men to be the leaders in the church. He's appointed them um, only to be the leaders. And, and that kind of unpacks itself in different ways in different churches. Um, some churches saying we, we just don't allow women elders um, or some saying we don't allow pastors or teachers to be women. We don't allow women to teach men at all. Um, and, and so it kind of it kind of varies. But at the heart of it, it's this idea that women have different roles in the church than men, and men are particularly called to be leaders. And so we were discussing this once again, and we, we played out every best case scenario that we could think of. I mean, we were really, we were trying our best to make it to make complementarianism feel as affirming of women as possible. But ultimately, we, we just couldn't help concluding that even in complementarianism's best possible presentation, it always ended up sounding like the language of an abuser. It sounded like, you can't do this, but hey, trust me, it's for your own good. And, and look at all the other things you can do. Hey, God set it up like this to protect you. Man, with these alarming conclusions from our conversation in my heart, I, I was just spurred to study the scripture and to spend real time in these complementarian proof texts. And we'll walk through what those are. 
And and I asked myself, could I work through these in a, in a thorough exegesis of scripture? And exegesis just means that like studying and deeply and thoroughly and what that would yield if we were to do that. And so that's the first claim I'm going to make, that we've been doing insufficient exegesis surrounding passages of gender and the sexes. I truly believe the best in pastors who preach these texts from a complementarian framework. I I know that their intent is to obey God in their best and most humble way, which I'll speak more about later. But to me, the sermons are clearly grounded on insufficient exegesis of the scripture. When we approach a text and leave with an interpretation that's backed by the argument, well, that, that's just what it says. So we've got to submit in obedience, whether we like it or not. I, I think we ought to be warned. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we never submit in obedience to the Bible, but the Bible just says a lot of things that we don't, in fact, submit in obedience to. Maybe you've heard the classic atheist response to such a position. Well, Leviticus just says that you shouldn't wear clothes of two fabrics, but here you are with a cotton and polyester shirt on. Or maybe you've heard the Christian critique that Paul just says to greet one another with a holy kiss, but we generally think that's a bad idea. In both of those cases, we employ a simple and accepted exegetical tool to conclude that they're not actually universal commands for us to obey today, even though they're preserved in scripture as imperatives. But let's get even a little bit more serious. What about the abundant New and Old Testament passages that seem to condone slavery and give biblical audiences proper guidelines within which to treat slaves and slaves their masters? So for a response to this, and hopefully you'll start to see where I'm going with this now, I'm going to turn to Esau McCauley's work in Reading While Black, which, by the way, totally read that book and don't just listen to this brief little summary of his introduction where he describes his experience in college where only one exegetical approach was presented around slavery, and that was that slavery is unarguably condoned by the Bible. So only the following responses remained. There was the fundamentalist approach to agree and just support slavery because it's in there, or the progressive approach was to dismiss the authoritativeness of Scripture to at least some degree. But Macaulay had grown up hearing what he calls the black ecclesial position, which he rightly claims to have done a better exegetical work. And so they concluded that the Bible does not, in fact, condone slavery, but it boasts a God of liberation. And you know what? This same sort of exegesis and misguided conclusions are arising still today regarding gender and roles in the church. This is perhaps the most crucial reason to follow up on these texts. The reason that we dismiss Levitical laws and Paul's kiss imperatives is because we have rightly interpreted those to be contextual, not universal commands. The reason the church boasts a theology of liberation for slaves today is also because of better exegetical work that emerged surrounding the passages that slaveholders once wielded as proof texts to support their arguments.
So don't get me wrong. It is, of course, true that we shouldn't just jump through interpretive hoops or search for ways to convince ourselves that God's word always agrees with our presuppositions. But we also shouldn't be simple in exegeting passages that seem to agree or not agree with us either. Such simplicity, according to Macaulay, resulted in two divided camps surrounding slavery and biblical authority, and both were erring. In the case of gender roles in the church, that same third option exists, that both egalitarian and complementarian conclusions are built on inadequate exegetical work and are similarly erring. We know this to be true because scripture will leave us with a blessing when we wrestle, not a curse. Now, a blessing doesn't mean that an, an interpretation that just like makes us feel good or, or never challenges our preconceived notions, but rather one that, that satisfies the soul. An interpretation from the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that's coming from the God of truth, and it finds its focal point in Jesus, and the result is a clear gospel proclamation. So we're missing out on a blessing of scripture because of this common exegesis of complementarian proof texts. And because they have just continued to bring a curse upon my wife by reinforcing her marginalization and, and also a curse to me as her husband who loves her and, and a lover of biblical truth, I, I began working through that pain. And I have prayed time and time again that God would change my feelings about this issue if they are just arising from my own personal discomfort towards something that God has made clear. Or if my feelings are actually pointing me to a truth that God desires for his church and thus is arising from the Holy Spirit that he would enhance my feelings and lead me to do a better exegetical work on those same proof texts than my contemporaries and, and to do one that leaves us with a blessing from God. So before you just stop listening, let me just say one thing about the subject matter's vitality for the church. The matter of interpreting these scriptures correctly is vital because it directly and practically affects the functionality of the body of Christ. For instance, we must conclude after interpreting 1 Timothy 2 that either one, no woman can teach a man in any setting, or two, women can teach men in at least some settings. And again, I don't condemn complementarians for their rigorous enforcement of the first interpretation of this text by prohibiting women from having pastoral and eldership roles in the church. It is the only obedient response if, indeed, their interpretation of the scripture is correct, although I'm going to argue against the validity of the interpretation with the rest of this. But it does go to show the vitality of proper exegesis because the church is either, one, in danger of compromising our obedience to God and the gender roles he established for the church, or two, marginalizing half the church's ability to use their spiritual gifts of teaching to admonish and exhort her. Either misstep would be catastrophic for the church. And I, I feel that we are bearing witness to that catastrophic fallout of this misinterpretation and it's yielding sin in the church. 
we see the fruit of it almost every month when another headline emerges about a male church leader who has sexually harassed and abused women unchecked by her all-male leadership. And on the other side, we see the church's inability to be lovingly prophetic in a culture that just has no clear direction regarding true human identity and how our gender and sexuality affects that. So with that vitality, I was moved in my prayers to study deeper for myself. I poured over exegetical approaches and interpretations that hit every color of the spectrum. And all of it led me to this. I wasn't fully satisfied by any one approach, but also I never failed to unearth glimmers of truth from every interpretation. And so a new conclusion began to form in my mind. It's the same conclusion Sydney and I come to almost every time we get into an argument that our argument is based around a misinterpretation. My conclusion, which I will expound on in the rest of this, is that exegetical errors have led to damaging interpretations from both egalitarian and complementarian interpretive parties. As I walk us through a more complete exegetical work on gender and the sexes, we'll see that there is room for both complementarians and egalitarians to come to the table around a more satisfactory exegesis of the scripture that enlightens the two truths embedded in our souls, which are one, men and women are created equally and have equal access to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which leads to equal distribution of spiritual gifts to be employed for all roles in the church, including preaching, teaching, and eldership. And two, that men and women image God in ways that are unique from each other. And, and so they complement one another such that apart from coming together, humanity would yield an insufficient knowledge of the God of the Bible. So in this, I'm offering what I'm calling the redeemed humanity viewpoint on the sexes in the Bible that takes these two truths and sees that they can actually work together because of Jesus. So before we finish this introductory episode, I want to just give you a quick scope of what this project will entail. First, I'm going to give a quick sociological underpinning of today's definitions of the words gender and sex. This is important because when an argument arises, it's often surrounding the vocabulary and it's a vernacular disagreement. So I'll begin by laying out some commonly accepted definitions of those words, followed by the exact definitions that I'll be using for the rest of this project. Next, I'm going to exegete sections of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as they regard gender in the sexes. This exegetical work is actually going to set the stage for properly exegeting the six New Testament passages that have been historically under scrutiny for their seemingly problematic nature. Thirdly, I'm going to highlight some biblical passages that seem to infer that women and men are created and spiritually gifted both equally and distinctly, carrying the conclusions from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that is going to offer us this clear biblical viewpoint on men and women, that even though there are differences between the sexes in the ways in which they image God, 
These differences do not necessitate church roles restricted exclusively for one of the sexes or the other. And in fact, the same spirit and the same portion of the spirit has been poured out on both male and female believers. So gender exclusive roles in the church would actually be restricting the gifts given by the spirit. Yet to completely negate the role that sex and gender plays in humanity it also hinders the biblical intention of the church. So finally, after all that, I'll undertake an exegesis of those six main complementarian proof texts, leaning on the work that we've already done in Genesis and the other sections to show that the redeemed humanity viewpoint, it's a proper interpretation of scripture, and it makes the most sense of what Paul's otherwise controversial words would be saying. And those are ones that have been historically either picked through or, or just ignored. And so with all this, as we conclude, I, I just want you to know that this is not going to be an attack on anyone or towards anyone's beliefs. I, I believe that everyone is out there humbly seeking to be obedient to the Lord when they're interpreting these texts. All I'm going to be doing is, is doing a full proper exegesis of these handful of passages that have been historically misinterpreted. And, and I don't fault anyone for misinterpreting the Bible. I'll be the first to admit that I do it. But of course, I, I feel the Spirit has led me to His proper interpretation of these texts, perhaps for just such a time as this. So we'll finish out this episode by diving into that gender and sex definitions and what those words are going to mean for this particular project. And then in the next episode, we'll crack open our Bibles and get into Genesis. But before we do that, let's talk about gender and the sexes. Because when we talk about gender and sex and use those words, there's there's actually some confusion surrounding what that really means. And so... For that reason, I feel like it would be helpful to define what I mean when I use these terms. Not what everybody means, but just for me in this project, what what I'm going to mean when I say gender or sexes. And so I've only attained a bachelor's of arts and science in sociology, so I'm not claiming to be like an expert on the field of gender and sexual identity in our society. But, but I've learned enough to know that these definitions are not as solid as some people might think they are or want them to be. And so they will be our first consideration before we actually jump into the Bible. And I want you guys to know that I, I do not intend to use these definitions as like a means of sidestepping or rerouting the conversation or that I'm just like, you know, using these definitions and their instability as a way of like giving into some social pressures rather than taking the Bible um, for what it is. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do here because the reality is that every word only has a symbolic meaning. There's no word ever that has had one perfect definition that lasts through the ages. And one thing that I thought of is C.S. Lewis brings this up in Mere Christianity, and he's talking about the word gentleman, and this is what he says. The word gentleman originally meant something recognizable, one who had a coat of arms and some land and property. When you called someone a gentleman, you were not paying him a compliment, but merely stating a fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. 
There was no contradiction in saying that John was a liar and a gentleman, any more than there is now in saying that James is a fool and an M.A. But then there came people who said so rightly and charitably, spiritually, sensitively, so anything but usefully, ah, but surely the important thing about a gentleman is not the coat of arms and the land, but the behavior. Surely he is the true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should. Surely in that sense, Edward is far more truly a gentleman than John. A gentleman, once it has been spiritualized and redefined out of its old course objective sense, means hardly more than a man whom the speaker likes. And as a result, gentleman is now a useless word. So we get the point, right? And especially in our modern culture where the word gentleman would have no connotation with a coat of arms apart from those who, like Lewis, hearken us back to its original meaning, this actually helps exemplify the point that every word is, in fact, a sociological construct. In medieval times, a gentleman simply owned a land and wore a coat of arms. And in 2021, we'd call that person a homeowner with an interest in cosplay. So today, we encounter a similar predicament surrounding the terms gender and sex. Only we face a slightly more complicated situation because there is little common ground on which to stand. Say tomorrow, if I visited SoCal University classroom and asked, hey, what are your thoughts on gender? I'd get a way different response than if I interrupted a game of bingo at a Southern retirement home and asked the same question. The first might speak of gender with their fluidity and their sexual identity, whereas the people playing bingo would likely just be more direct with their approach to gender. And we don't need to be troubled by this state of affairs um, when it comes to the definitions of gender. Although the need to make such a statement, it kind of points out a cultural reality that our definitions are not just the only thing in contention, but we, we actually are contending with a state of hostility surrounding these topics. You know, the conservative would feel like his progressive neighbor is pushing an agenda when speaking about his gender identity. And the progressive would feel that they're talking with someone who's just out of touch with reality. And so both people would leave the conversation totally offended and decide it's best to just put up a new fence between their houses and pretend that they live in different neighborhoods, which, you know, maybe, maybe they do metaphorically. One lives in a neighborhood where the definition of gender means the sexual organs I was born with, and the other in a community that defines it as the degree to which my inner self exhibits maleness or femaleness. And you know, I've been out of the university scene long enough to know if this kind of dual community society has been given a lot of research, but my guess is that because of the polarity in our society, combined with this relatively new ability to form personal online communities that consist of hand-picked individuals whose voices we can either amplify or mute at our own discretion, I'm guessing all of that is moving our social structures at a really rapid and, and two-directional rate faster than we've ever seen. So to put it plainly and probably a little bit oversimplistically, the U.S. seems to be experiencing a, a culture split. We're forming a progressive neighborhood and a conservative neighborhood. And in these two neighborhoods, many words like gender take on meaning specific to their community and, and contrast to the other. 
And the pace at which these new definitions are accepted, it's changing as rapidly as just click share, but only with the people in my neighborhood, right? So perhaps you'll feel that I'm belaboring this point a little bit, and, and you know, maybe I am, but there's a reason. The reason is to explain the following gender definitions and the definition of sex are not universally accepted because they, they can't actually be, ever. My hope is that regardless of which neighborhood you live in or your proximity to the fence line, that you can just suspend that hostility if it exists and accept these definitions as if it were only within the bounds of this project. And so my hope is to provide two words that will be used to appease both definitions of gender that exist today. And so for the sake of this project, please accept the following definitions that I'll be using. Gender, an individual's internal consideration of their own maleness and femaleness when referencing to social and cultural differences rather than biological ones. Sex, the fundamental distinction found in humans based on the type of gametes produced by the individual and the presence of XX or XY chromosomes resulting in the most common phenotypic manifestations of sex as determined by endocrine influences such as development of breasts and genital organs. So, as you can probably already see, trying to define these words is tall and not honestly within the bounds of me to be definitive on, but I'm trying my best. And as you'll notice, particularly in the definition of sex, it's, it's not necessarily all-inclusive. Although some may wish it to be simpler, we live in a complex world regarding not only gender, but also anatomical sex. We actually do live in a world where bodies may produce gametes and phenotypes and organs that are not necessarily the most frequently indicated by their chromosomal makeup. And I desperately wish that I could write a thesis that is able to speak on every single individual on a personal level, but the diversity of human gender and sex, given those above definitions, is as numerous as there are humans. However, in this project, I will not be addressing really gender as defined above at all, because gender is socially and culturally bound. So a proper exegesis of scripture regarding gender should always begin with that as a note and make it clear that a gender role in ancient Israel and first century Rome is inherently going to be incongruent with our 21st century modern society. And though the Bible surely contains wisdom regarding one's gender, part of my aim in this section is to show that the Bible is speaking primarily about what I'm calling the sexes. This is not a cop-out. It's actually more helpful for a Bible reader because one's sex is not culturally constrained. So anything the Bible has to say about the sexes in the ancient world can and should still be applied wisely today. So with all that said, I'm going to be speaking in generalities based on the above definition of sex and the sexes. And what I mean by that is, in the context of this project, I'll be speaking of one's genetic makeup as either a man or a woman as it's generally observed in humans. As we continue in this project, we'll come to see that these two definitions will be helpful for us because the Bible has much to say in regard to the sexes. However, regarding gender in, in like our own modern context, it doesn't have as much to say. 
And, you know, I don't expect you just to accept that as my own word, um, but we'll come to see it in fruition once we actually get to the exegetical section of this project. So again, I recognize that these categories don't encompass every single person, and for that, I apologize. But these definitions are not simply for our own clarity regarding this project, but also because a more binary way of understanding the sexes is more closely aligned with the biblical construction and understanding of what those words meant at the time. And we'll see that, that that's not actually all that bad or outdated. And, and so as we continue on, you know, I hope that one day some more excellent and amazing scholar than myself can pick this up and, and maybe be inspired to work more thoroughly on this whole section. But that would just be outside of my scope. Wow. So if you're still here with me at the end of this, I just want to say thank you so much. I'm so humbled that you just want to walk through and explore this together um, with me. It means so much. And I want to encourage you, please don't just take my word for this. Um, I've spent a lot of time, but I, I beg you to go to the Lord in prayer daily. Ask him to speak, ask him to move in your life. Open up the scripture and truly just study it on your own time. Get people together and ask questions. It's through all that and through the spirit that I have been moved to this place. And so I encourage you to do that, do that same st stuff, that same process, um, whether it's particularly for this issue or, or another one that you're feeling moved to. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit has plans for you and he wants to lead us to grow together as a church. And so I just want to thank you for being a part of that. And I look forward to seeing you next time.